Hello and welcome to the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today we'll be discussing Proposals 101 for Freelancers, what they are, why you should care about them, and tips, techniques, and tactics we've seen really make the difference as you grow from freelancer to indie consultant and beyond. On today's panel, we have Mark. Hi. Eric. Hey, everybody. And I'm Kai. Today, we're going to chat about, you know, uh, proposals for freelancers, how to get started using them and, you know, succeeding with them. I'm curious, what are folks' feelings on proposals? Do you love them? Do you hate them? Do you run out of the room screaming when a client says, hey, send us a proposal? So for me, over the years, I view a proposal as something of a lifeline. I mean, that may be stating it a little too strongly, but the proposal is sort of a sanity check where, um, you know, I'm not really doing my management consulting practice too much anymore, maybe a little bit by request. But when I was in the thick of that, it's a lot of sales conversations and it would be for a lot of like custom styles of consulting coming in to coach a team or coming in to help somebody achieve a particular outcome. So typically that sales cycle involves a few different phone calls, maybe even an in-person visit. And there's a lot of discovery and discussion about what the project is going to involve. So I always viewed the proposal as not only the thing that advanced discussions to the next stage where you're talking about pricing and how to engage, but like kind of a reframe that puts the ball in your court to say, this is my understanding and here's what I'm suggesting that we do going forward. Here's some options, et cetera. So I view them very positively because I think it turns your sales cycle into your own thing instead of when you're first freelancing, you might go out and and get some custom work or what have you. And it's almost employment-like where the client is saying, I need the following tasks done. And it's this like checklist of stuff. And then you're only, you know, you just kind of get started. You have an hourly rate and that's it. The proposal is your way to say, here's the scope. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how it's going to work. Assumptions. There's a lot of stuff that can go in there. So for me, I always viewed it as a way to basically kick off the engagement on the right foot or kind of a last ditch way to disqualify a bad prospect. So full endorse for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like I definitely have a sort of a love-hate relationship with the, a complicated relationship with proposals for sure. Um, I always feel like I know, um, like I know what I want to get across in the proposal, and it took me a long time to get where to get where I'm at. So I'm at a lot a, a better place with proposals now, in that um, they don't take very much time at all because all of the legwork sort of done up front, and now the templates complete and I can just sort of pile in sort of refine the process that I can put in the points that are required, all of the aspects that are needed and then, and then ship it off to the client. I know in the beginning though, I, I empathize with people who are, who are first starting off because it can be, it can be a struggle and there's so many unknowns and also so many opinions, so many very polarizing opinions about proposals. My my uh, feelings very much, you know, straddle the gamut between you two. Uh, I frequently find myself just like dreading or disliking writing proposals, but that really only comes up when my process has become inefficient or the process is just broken and every proposal becomes like a heavy lift. <laughs> what the hell does the template look like? What am I writing here? What's the client's need? But as I get these parts of the system more ironed out, suddenly maybe my initial call questions line up with my proposal template. And so it's a lot easier to go from, hey, we talked about this thing okay, let me review what you answered. Let me get that into my template. And hey, now there's a proposal. 
maybe it goes from six hours to an hour to generate a proposal. So I could definitely empathize with both experiences there. They are wonderful, and it is a great experience to sort of reframe what the client is looking for. And they could be horrible because, oh my gosh, this is a big heavy lift. Uh, I, I should probably clarify something that I said, which is that the perspective I offered was after years of writing proposals, refining that process, getting used to how I worked and all that. Early on, I think if memory serves, it was it felt like a pretty onerous process. And I can empathize with anybody listening, especially if you've just gone off on your own and started to freelance. It almost feels like you're being asked to write your own job description. So you have this discovery call. And then the prospective client says, all right, great. Just shoot us over a proposal and you agree to do that. Uh, but then you're quietly thinking like, oh my God, what do I do? How can I possibly have that for you in a day or two? But you've just agreed because they seem to think it's a normal thing that you should have. So you're feverishly Googling like, yeah, if it feels like you're starting from scratch, that you have nothing to start with and you're tasked with writing what basically amounts to call it a job description for the next three or six months, that seems pretty awful. So I think probably a lot of the focus, maybe what we can demystify for you here is like, how do you get to a point where you're not um, you're not reinventing the wheel every time where like actually generating your proposal format is, is pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. And I know we've never, like I've never talked with you guys sort of on or offline about your proposal processes. So I'm super interested, like what, what are the first steps you guys typically take um, I know there's a lot of follow-up questions to that too, but also like what over time have you found has been working, but also what have you sort of ditched and got rid of because it just really wasn't serving the process? That's a really good question. <laughs> so, uh, uh, let me think here for a second. What, what I found worked well is, uh, uh, again, just having that system sort of refining down to the initial call script, the template for the proposal, and the more sort of locked in place those are, the easier it becomes. Uh, Value-based or pain-seeking questions always increase in value in my mind the more I come to understand a market. So just asking questions along the lines of, hey, what's the problem? How could I help here? Or what if we didn't solve that? What's the other option for your company? Just to understand the uh, ramifications, the scope, and the impact of the problem the lead or client currently has. In terms of what I've ditched, one slash two things come to mind. And it's it's really like a long-term proposal. The more confident I become in understanding the client's needs, the client's business, my uh, uh, abilities and what I could deliver, the more I shift away from like the standard enterprise-y, Alan Weissy proposal and more towards like, hey, here's a quote in an email. This is the thing. This is how I could help. This is what we'll get started with. And this is the price. Let me know if this looks good to you. And I found that's both easier for me and kind of more in line with what the clients want. I've never had a client say, Kai, thank you so much. This 21-page proposal is excellent. We printed it out. We sent it to the board. We're having it framed. No. But when I send the short quote or short proposal over email, it's like, this looks great. I'll send it over to the rest of the team. We'll get you a response in a few days. So those are sort of a couple of the variables that I've seen shift with time and experience. Uh, I'm trying to think of my answers to the same question. And so hit subscribe current business that I preside over has a proposal format that's just kind of like it's it's a productized service at its core. So we have a template that we're just filling out. And so there's not a lot of thought going into this. But in my consulting days, I think early on, I started with um, because before I was off on my own, I had worked um, with or even subcontracted at times for like app dev agencies. 
I'm just trying to untangle all this history. It's kind of woven together, but I was early on exposed to what an agency does, like, you know, a mid market type agency when writing proposals. And those are like, you mentioned Kai with like, they're like binders full of stuff and they're, they're probably putting um, the projected scope in there. So you've got like cost estimates and here's all the stuff and maybe even wireframes, like who knows? Um, So that's where I came from. And I think early on I would create these proposals under my own letterhead that were lengthy. And what I learned to do after a couple was like, okay, I'm going to start with this one I've created because this is a time consuming, painful process. And then over time being a programmer, I recognized like, oh, this is copy and paste programming. What I should really do is template this thing. And um, over time, what I started to eliminate or move away from was a lot of the boilerplate. So a similar experience. My proposal these days, if I were to send one for management consulting, often it's just in an email with a few bullets, like here are some options. But to make it a little more formalized on letterhead, it's still only a couple of pages because I realized... Uh, what does anybody do when they open a proposal? The first thing they do is they scan through everything else and they look for the price. And so if you kind of orient around that, like I'm going to have these pricing options, then everything that supports that becomes what you need in a proposal and all this stuff about your mission and values or whatever, like nobody's going to read that. So I kind of worked backwards to just the bare essentials. Like let's state the business problem that we're solving. Um, You know, why am I, or why is the solution well suited for what you're doing? Maybe a recap of a discovery conversation. And then here are the prices. Here's what you'll get out of it. Uh, maybe some assumptions and deliverables. I'm just kind of recreating the template I had off the top, but that was basically it. So um, it was a matter of kind of continuously trying to build on what I'd done before to make it more and more efficient to generate them and incorporating learning along the way and then just cutting stuff that nobody seemed to value and that made it take longer for me and be more painful. Uh, so that was you know, my experience over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely hear you guys with paring down. I think when I first started out, my proposals were they've sort of gone both ways. So when I first started out, they were extremely long and way too detailed. And that's what I started to strip out. Like nobody wants to know about my company history and about all of that kind of stuff. And I think the biggest thing that I stripped out, um, because it became more of a question and almost a barrier to a barrier to the potential client was um, itemizing, uh, like itemizing things by price for like components of the project, I would highly recommend not to do that. I know there's people that that do say to do that. But what I found was, if I were to itemize it, especially when it's a project less than less than $10,000, you're getting people that are like, well, this component's 300, this component's 1200, let's take away this one, let's do this. And then they start to do, it becomes this like Build-A-Bear of a uh, <laughs> of a project. And the reality is, is that so many of the components are reliant on each other. And to make like a comprehensive piece of work that you're proud of, you really need to include, like all of these things are holistic and they often work among each other as well. So that was, I think, one of the probably the bigger lessons that I learned is not to, not to itemize in that sense. And then some of the other, some of the other things that I've stripped out, I'm trying to think as well. Um, I definitely stripped out technical jargon. I feel like that if nothing else makes the client feel dumb and that's the last thing, um, that's the last thing you ever want to do. And I do find that sometimes 
a lot of time developers get caught in the uh, get caught in sort of the language and the uh, the nomenclature and the jargon uh, because it's day to day commonplace and sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it. So a big a big difference too was stripping it down to like bare language as well. Um, so I think those are the things that I've stripped out as far as adding. And I think my proposal probably looks a lot different than you guys. It's interesting. Um, so mine is a few pages long because it's a, it's a, it's in a PDF. So I usually do it in a PDF. So I have the template for that, it's typically depending on how robust it is about, um, nine pages, which could seem crazy, but it's very visual. So it really just has like one page is literally like four blocks, which is like a timeline of milestones. So it's not like a text wall of nine pages. And then the first page is the title page. The last page is the pricing page. So it is like, there's not walls of text on each page. So it tries to kind of like, it's almost like one portion of the project is is sort of dedicated to, to each page. And then the last one, um, I think I included a, um, one of the big things that I did include and this was, again, something that evolved over time. And I'm curious if you guys have ever come across this. Um, do you include in the proposal what's not included in the price? Um, because I started putting a list of that in mostly because uh, a lot of the times when I was talking to clients, especially when they were sort of early on in their online career and we were making maybe like their second website, I was making on the last page, I make sure I'm really clear to say like, this does not include hosting. This is does not include photography. This does not include the price of your domain. So all of these sort of extra, extra things that, that come across it. Um, so I'm wondering if you guys have ever gotten any sort of gotchas um, along the process as well. I've definitely put my foot in the proverbial sinkhole many times with proposals. I, uh, I'm trying to think of like a good shareable experience there, but it's more just been honestly an unclear scope or unclear expectations on my side. And it's like, I will do this thing. And we get three months into the project and it's like, oh my God, this is a way different thing than I thought we were going to be doing. Ah, so I've definitely had mistakes or gotchas like that. Uh, uh, in terms of things that aren't included, I haven't really zigged in that direction, but I sometimes will say, or maybe I have, but I'll frame it as these things aren't included, but as an additional package, we could take care of ABC. Maybe in the scope of, say, podcast outreach, I'll say, oh, this does include getting onto podcasts, doesn't include webinars, doesn't include summits. For this additional package, we could tackle those as well. Or I'm doing the outreach, but I'm not writing your web page for you for an additional package. We could tackle that as well. Mm -hmm. Out of scope things I've put in, but more situationally. I was doing a lot of custom kind of value-based proposals a lot of times. So there wouldn't as much with that be an assumption of something being in scope. So it didn't come up a lot, but I tend to have an assumptions section or something along the line of rules of engagement. And so an example I can think of is like for a retainer consulting arrangement, I would say something like, um, you know, for X dollars a month, Anybody sitting in the C-suite can call me as much as they want. This does not apply, you know, to people in managerial or director roles. Uh, those are not the people, you know. So I might, depending on the nature of it, put in something like that. Um, yeah, um, I don't think I've ever, like, had it as part of the standard form, but I was always thinking through, like, how could they, this be misconstrued or what what form of scope creep or, or something might happen. Um 
Yeah. I also, what you were saying about itemizing, um, my goodness, I, I fully agree with that. And one thing I'd offer to the listeners is like, when you were talking about itemizing and wanting to get away from that, I was uh, just like last Friday, I, I got a quote to have our basement refloored and it was itemized to a level of granularity that I just, I couldn't really understand. I'm like, I guess these are materials, but they were shorthanded where, and, and so it was the same thing with like jargon making you feel stupid, except for me, it was like, I don't know what any of this means. So I emailed the person back and said like, can you just call me and explain to me what this even is? Like, what are my options here? So um, the reason I wanted to circle back and touch on that is for anyone listening, get a sanity check. Like imagine that you're the client getting this and imagine you don't know your shop and you've got all these options, what are you going to do? Are you going to start to customize and mix and match? Are you going to not know what's going on? So either you can, if you, if you can kind of get yourself out of that mindset of being the expert, but maybe you just ask somebody to give it a look who also isn't a subject matter expert and say like, would you understand this? Uh, would you have a lot of questions? Is this hard to read? Um, so I think that was a great point. Uh, yeah. I, would not itemize things in there because, you know, as another aside, if you're making a knowledge work proposal, itemizing things is also a good way to make it look like you're proposing reflooring my basement. Like it's kind of a more, I don't know, it, it makes everything seem more commodified. So I think that's a great point. Mm-hmm. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. One thing you mentioned there, Eric, just to uh, build on that, having somebody else review the proposal is possibly the best optimization I've made in my business over the past five years. With rare exception, I'll send every single proposal to a colleague, a friend, somebody I'm in a mastermind with, and just say, hey, can we you know, get on a Zoom call, read through this together, or mark it up in Google Docs? Let me know where it like loses the plot, or doesn't make sense, or just veers way off course. It might not always catch something, but I've always found it valuable to get that additional set of eyes just because after working on it for a bit, I definitely get tunnel vision on what I know and what I understand and my assumptions about what the client will understand. So just having that third party look at it, huge, huge improvement for almost any proposal or quote. And another question I just thought of too is that do you guys, uh, if the client comes back to you, uh, well, first, I guess there's there's two points, parts to this question. The proposal, when you issue the proposal, is that the first time the client is seeing and hearing the price from you? Um, or is that just a way of putting it down on paper? And then the other question is, is that to you, is the proposal final or do you allow room for negotiation? This is an interesting thing for me to answer because... It's different with my business hit subscribe. We're selling blog posts and forms of content. We have published prices on the website. So when we're sending over proposals for hit subscribe, it's based on a conceptual agreement with the client. We might send them a few different options, but they've been discussed. The price is not a mystery. So, you know, they can go onto our site. We even have a pricing widget that lets them build that. So we'll put that together into a proposal to summarize it nicely for them and to kind of explain how some things work. It's just a one or two pager. And there's no surprise there for them. And we also do not negotiate on that. Um, our, the prices are the prices. Um, so that's one style of business, but it was different in my consulting. Um, I wouldn't negotiate on price. I might negotiate on scope. So what I would typically do is 
they wouldn't be aware of the price beforehand because there would be a lot of discovery. And most of what I was doing was coming up with some kind of fixed price, usually value pricing the engagement in some fashion. So short of that kind of discovery of what the value was to them, we didn't really know. Then I'd come up with some pricing options and send them over. And if they were to come back and say, well, I like option B, but I want to pay less. That's just a matter of policy. I wouldn't negotiate on that. But instead I might say, well, okay, given your budget, maybe we can do a modified version of a, or here's something else I could see doing at that price. So I've historically, I've just, there's been nothing but pain for me negotiating on price or allowing clients to negotiate on price. It's, it's kind of like give them an inch and they'll take a foot. Like my experience has been, if you open willing to negotiate that way, it'll just never stop. It'll be an endless negotiation of everything. Um, but I'm not married to what I'm putting in the proposal per se. It's just a policy not to negotiate on price. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, the proposal is usually the first time they see the price. We'll talk about it in generalities on the call. Eh, this will probably be like, you know, four figures, mid four figures per month for the engagement. And in the proposal, it's the first time I said, okay, for this scope or for these tiers, these are the prices. When I have a strong stable of productized services, then it veers more towards what Eric described for hit subscribe. Prices are on the website. I'm probably not even setting a proposal. I'm linking you to the sales page and says the price right there in big, bold numbers. So there you have it. In terms of negotiating, I too don't negotiate on price, but I will on scope. So if I say, hey, you know, for 5000 a month, we could do all of these things. And they say, uh, you know, cash flow is an issue. We could do 3000 a month. Great. Here are a smaller number of things I could do for you. And in a few months, in a quarter, when we see this relationship is going well, then we could discuss increasing the scope, figuring out a new scope and growing our relationship. So I'm more than happy to be flexible, but I'm not about to let the client say, well, you've got that price at 10,000. I'll give you 2000 and shake hands on that. It's not in my business interest. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's kind of what I was, what I was wondering for you guys, cause I'm totally on board. Like I'm willing to, uh, I'm willing to change the price, but the scope would definitely need to be changed accordingly. So we can, um, and that's the good thing too, is about not itemizing it. They can't pull out what they want to pull out. So you can, as the expert advise them like, oh, and I am a big, a big fan of like breaking things into multiple phases if need be as well too, if that matches their budget as well. So if things need to be removed from scope to get more down to like a minimal vi- minimum viable product, and then maybe in the future we can go and scope out and scope out more. And a lot of times when we do that, because it's stretched over a longer period of time, they'd usually end up actually paying more in the long term um, because they're probably not get, they're not going to get the same price that they would if they sort of paid everything up front. Um, so as it's stretched over long term, of course, they pay um, they'll probably pay a little bit more for it. But I mean, like any kind of payment plan and stuff like that. That's generally generally how things work. So yeah, definitely on the same page with that for sure. How do you guys feel about? tiers or options in a proposal? A sometimes thing, an always thing, strong opinion for or against? My product, my projects are typically all really custom from the get-go. So I haven't, I haven't delved into uh, pr- more productized offerings where we could have, uh, where we could have those tiers. Sometimes I will advise them though, say if there's different if there's different softwares and it's like well in the long term i mean if you're building an e-commerce site do we want to do you want to 
go with like a self-managed um, like WooCommerce or something that you're going to put a lot of money into over the long term because you take care of everything yourself. Um, but maybe there's features that aren't in Shopify that we need to build manually. So there's definitely options and price adjustments according to those options. But I don't think I've ever gone in with a set with any set tiers because everything's been so custom. But I can definitely see that in more like productized services for sure. For me, I got to a point in the management consulting where it was a matter of policy always to include options. And the reason for that was uh, what I started to learn, at least in my personal experience, was your close rate on proposals with options is way higher um, because of the psychological difference between if you send a proposal with one price and one set of things they can do, it's a binary choice. Do I do this or not? If you send three options, then what the person naturally starts to think about is which one of these three makes the most sense for me, not do I want to work with this agency or this person or not. Um, and I can't really speak like I'm not a psychologist. I haven't studied this. I don't know exactly what goes on in the human brain, but I did have enough data of doing that both ways per anecdotally, like my close rate was better. Um, so what I got into the habit of doing was kind of thinking that there might be a middle of the road proposal, which is along the lines of what we discussed. And then I might start to think through like, well, okay, what if they came back and said, I only have half of this budget. Like, is there a light version I could do of this that would get them 80% of the way there? And then on the flip side, is there an upsell that we haven't really discussed? But if I brainstorm this, I think it would be a great add-on for them where if they have more budget, you know, because if they're talking to you about spending, I don't know, 50K on some kind of consultative engagement for a quarter or whatever it may be, um, you don't know that they don't have more than that to spend. That might just be what they're talking about. Um, you know, they might have budget that they were going to put toward other things. And if you just suggest like, hey, I could also do these things, they might come back and say, oh, that's great. We were going to pay someone else to do those, but hey. So I would typically take what I thought we were kind of veering towards in the discovery call and add an option above and below just um, for the sake of giving them those options, for the sake of kind of hedging on what if they don't like this stuff at this price. And then also I think there's something too and I don't know for sure on this, but about psychological, like middle of the road pricing where like one price anchors another. Uh, I read about this more back four years ago when I was paying a lot more attention to this, but it's something like um, uh, maybe does one of you like know what I'm talking about, where if you anchor like with a high price, then another price below it, there's something that happens there. Yeah, there is. And I was actually just looking into this too. It is, you're right. It's called anchoring. And I think they all go into it. There's a book called Never Split the Difference. And I believe they go into it as well. There's actually a really amazing, and maybe we can probably link it as well. There's a really amazing YouTube video by Chris Doe that also goes into it. Um, and he goes into it in depth too. And yeah, he goes into a lot of like psychological, um, I'll use the word techniques instead of tricks, but <laughs> psychological <laughs> techniques that it's intuitive for us to, so if somebody's going with a range or maybe two different numbers, it's almost intuitive for us to say the lower number first and the, the higher one second or go up in scale. But actually, if you say the higher number first, um, that's the number that they anchor. Uh, and then everything, when you say the number is lower than that, it almost feels like a deal to them, which is, which is, doesn't seem intuitive to say like, oh, this project's going to be anywhere from 
30,000 to 10,000. Like the the other way sounds so much more intuitive, like 10 to 30. But apparently if you can get in the habit of saying like the higher number first, if it is a range or if you're, or if you're showing it to them uh, on paper or if there's different options, apparently you're right. It does. Apparently that does make a difference for sure. I didn't, I didn't, remember or think about the ordering, I guess, but that makes sense. I'm imagining getting something or if a contractor's out here telling me about something like I was, we live on a lake and I was getting quotes, I think for like building a seawall. And there was a guy that came out and was like, well, you know, it'd be like $30,000 for what you're looking for. And I was like, Oh, good Lord. And then he's like, but you know, for $10,000, and I'm like, Oh, not bad. Oh, <laughs> you know, whereas so like saved $20,000. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Yeah, that strikes me as real. Like, I I don't remember what research I did, but I think I discovered some of these things as I went that it was kind of like a hack, you know, my close rate on these is better, or, you know, the discussion seemed to go better. And so over the course of time, I evolved to listing options that way. And it seemed to work pretty well. I, I haven't done research on this, but one of my internal beliefs is presenting the prices in that way gives important context. If I just say, this is going to be 30000 it's like, that seems like a large number. I don't spend that much on a lot of things in my life. And a seawall? But if you get the context of like, oh, this could cost, you know, up to 30000 but for 10000 we could get you 70% of what you're looking for here. Suddenly I could see 10000 is still a lot of money, but compared to 30, oh my God, this is, this is a dream. Thank you, dear contractor. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, uh, value-based pricing, Eric, and value-based pricing is probably a topic best suited for another episode. But briefly, I'm curious, how do you go about uh, uh, identifying or figuring out, okay, what the levers are for price or what price to put in the proposal? For hit subscribe, the productized service there, it's kind of a question of internal cost and margin. So for hit subscribe, and I, I suspect this would be the case for a lot of productized services that people offer. It's what's known as cost plus pricing. So like, what are my costs? And then what do I want to earn to keep my business going on top of that? So that's a pretty easy way to reason about price. And then it's just kind of on the client, like, uh, do you accept that or not? Like, is that in your budget or not? And so it's kind of like pricing something at the grocery store if you're walking by and there's a candy bar either you're willing to spend three bucks on the candy bar or you know that's too expensive i won't um so that's one style i've done and then the other um value pricing is basically i would try in the discovery call to understand the client calls you up and they might say something like i'm trying to think of um some good examples for my management consulting travels, but it might be like, Hey, um, you know, I can think of an example in the enterprise of a bank that, um, I was brought in and they were saying, we're running this program. Um, we're building out, uh, this aspect of our like auto dealership financing pricing. We're building this new platform. We're doing this upgrade and, um, our program is getting off the rails. It's running behind and the program is worth this amount of money. So value-based pricing kind of at its core is me looking at that and saying, okay, you have this program that has like $20 million in spend apportioned. Uh, You're off track with that. And you're in danger of getting so far off track that your board or whoever's approving this like pulls the plug. So I would argue that somebody coming in and getting this back on track is worth $20 million. So if I want to spend a quarter here, you know, I'll take a fairly small cut of that. And the reason that you do something like that is that when you present it, 
you're getting this alignment on what you're doing and what it's worth. So if you're getting them to say, yeah, fair enough, uh, salvaging this $20 million program is worth a pretty good bit of money. And if somebody's going to quote me a hundred K to solve a $20 million problem, that seems like it's worth doing. So the value pricing is kind of getting to this point. That's not really related to purely their budget. Um, I, I mean, it is, but like by an order of magnitude, I guess. Um, and it's also not related to your cost. It's kind of both of you coming together and saying, this is worth it for me as the vendor. It's a good amount of money and it's worth it for you because you're going to profit in some fashion from doing this. So let's kind of come together in that fashion. I'm probably like, we ought to have Jonathan Stark out to talk about value pricing. I'm probably giving not the best explanation, but it's just, it's a question of figuring out what your engagement is actually going to be worth downstream to the client. And then asking for a percentage of that, which I think anybody would agree is pretty fair, assuming uh, you get right your assessment of their value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, I will also add on that there's a um, there's almost like an, an onus of risk trade-off too. And by that, what I mean is like by value pricing something and ensuring that you're going to create something that works, that is able to make them, I mean, I just had a client recently that had like almost a million dollar launch and we needed to know that this worked. So it was more QA. It was more, um, like it was more work. It was triple check. This isn't, so this wasn't like a, um, like a hundred dollar launch. And so we needed to, like triple check every possible scenario of this before it goes live. So there is a response. There's almost like this, um, this onus of risk. Whereas, so I expect to be paid a considerable amount of money. If I'm going to make something that's going to generate them that much money. And also I'm putting my name behind the fact that it's going to work. Um, the, the flip side of that is people who go to charge hourly it's almost like they are absolving themselves of a significant amount of risk. And they're saying, well, I am doing the work and I'm, I'm being paid hour by hour. And if something's not done right, or you need more, uh, you need more QA and you need more of this and you need more of that. And you're forcing the client to make decisions that will rack up your hours more and more. So I do feel like Value pricing, I don't know if I explained that properly, but I do feel like value pricing really works for me because I'm willing to take on the responsibility of the project succeeding, but I'll take it on and it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, And I think that's fair. I think the risk of taking on that responsibility is worth something. It's worth something that you'll get outside of billing hourly for sure. It's absolutely, I would agree with that. And, and, also, what you, what you said just reminded me too. I was thinking, um, so it, it, as it relates to proposals, when you value price something and you're baking that risk into what you're doing, you're kind of writing into the proposal um, something that, tell, that that sells a very concise narrative. So, uh, my proposal template, as I value price adjusted to be one of the first things, would be my assessment. Like, here's the. I, I call it maybe a business opportunity or something, but to go back to my example, um, you know, XYZ bank has a $20 million program to do X. That program is getting behind schedule. It's running the risk of, uh, you know, the plug being pulled by the board of directors. And my engagement is going to be this and the successful outcome will be a roadmap to get the program back on track. 
now the close rate on this type of proposal is high and they're not assuming they agree with your statement of the problem and the program's worth and all that, they're not going to negotiate with you. It might seem unbelievable to people listening, but really not. So if you say I'm, you spend a hundred thousand dollars with me and I'm going to save you $20 million done. Like if they believe that you can do that and they believe that's what's at stake, they're not going to say like, well, how many hours are you going to spend on that to earn that hundred thousand? Like they don't care. And the reason that it kind of flips over in their mind is that trust. Like you're assuming a bunch of risk. So you're not talking about hours if it winds up taking you thousands of hours to do it and you're only getting paid a hundred thousand. That's a you problem, not a client problem. So I guess um, kind of piggybacking on what you were saying is that there is this element of fairness and this element of assumption of risk and being more strategic. Um, and that's real. So you've got to get kind of good at what you're doing and what you're delivering. But once you do that, oh my goodness, like a value-based proposal is so much easier to write and sell because it's just a no-brainer. I mean, as you're listening to me talk about that, like, would you invest $100,000 to make or save $20 million? Of course you would. So it just becomes a question of, do you believe the freelancer or the consultant can deliver that outcome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I would also add to that there's value in stuff being done quickly, which goes counterintuitive to charging by the hour. Because if you're paying someone by the hour, um, they could ultimately stretch it out to take longer if if uh, if it's somebody who's not 100% honest about things. <laughs> but also, that being said, if you can pay twice as if you can pay twice as much and get it done in half the time, that's hugely advantageous, especially to bigger companies. And your clients, by the way, or prospects, anyone reading a proposal would much rather have a price than a rate. Mm-hmm. So like, imagine if you're listening, imagine I was talking about bringing over a flooring person uh, to come and redo our basement floor. Put yourself in that situation and imagine you get two bids. One is um, I'm going to charge you $100 an hour and I think it's going to take 20 hours. So it's 2000 And then another one is just like, I'll do this for 3000 I don't know about you, but I'd probably go with the I'll do this for 3000 rather than the person who says, well, it might be 2000 but it might also be 10000 if I get down there and whatever. And, you know, who knows? These are just estimates. So if you're writing and, and signing proposals, being able to give a flat price is much more attractive. Uh, granted, it's more of a risk. So if you're newly on your own and you really don't have a good sense of how to price and scope things, um, you know, answering proposals with hourly rate might be the thing to do because um, what you don't want to do is give a flat price of $2,000 and then you know, wind up dragging out forever. And that's a price you can't really deliver on. But um, just from the prospect's perspective, having a flat price in hand, having a price rather than an estimate is super valuable. If it's you versus a comparable, um, or if it's if, if you are giving a price versus a vendor giving a comparable estimate, they're going to choose you every time. I've always seen fixed prices in those circumstances really communicate confidence. I, as the service provider, am confident I could deliver on this, am confident I could get this done in this time, and I'm confident in my skills here. I believe I'm a professional who can address and tackle this problem. And myself included, I often see the slip towards more hourly pricing when it's like, this is a really weird and squishy problem. It's kind of like off in the dark. I've done things kind of like it, but shrug and see. And those projects sometimes are fine to take on, but 
for myself, I've definitely started to use it as a barometer to say, okay, do I actually have some uncertainty about this? And should that make me back up and say, hey, before we dive into, you know, a proposal for this project, maybe we should do a bit of discovery here just to nail down some of these uncertainties, better understand the value to you and make sure I know that this is a project I could deliver on. Maybe we get a week into discovery and I'm like, oh no, I cannot help with this. There is a bear inside of here. I need to refer you to a bear specialist. I cannot help you. Yeah. the You, you know, what that reminds me of too is another pitfall of the style of proposal writing that's, you know, here's a list of tasks that I perceive to be your scope and here's my hourly rate is you can wind up taking what's called blood money where you maybe in discovery or at some point in general form the opinion, hey, this isn't even a good idea for you, the client, but like, eh, I don't really care. I mean, you're paying me by the hour. I'll do all the things until you run out of money or what, you know. So if you're doing a discovery that's like value-based or, or you're flat pricing it and tying it to some kind of outcome, it becomes incumbent on you to look at the client and what they're trying to do. And for both of you together to, to come to agreement, like, is this feasible? Is this worth doing? And then you want to walk away in my opinion from anything where a client's like, um, you know, I can't think of a great example off the cuff, but if they're paying, you know, like, Hey, I want to adopt both uh, Salesforce and HubSpot as like co-joint CRMs. And then I want you to build something for me that like, always sinks the data both ways. Like that's a really bad idea. Why would you ever do that? I'm not going to take your money and do that for you. I could, but like, don't do that. And usually what happens is if they're trying to commission something that isn't a good idea, even if they don't appreciate it in the moment by kind of pulling back and saying, I can't make a case for ROI here. They'll remember that. And when that project inevitably goes badly, you'll probably get a call from them later and they're sheepishly saying, Hey, you know, we, we got rid of that one project manager that wanted to do that. Well, you know, we're interested in more input. So uh, writing proposals where you're doing real diligence up front and, and positioning yourself as an expert and writing something into the proposal that is a good statement of the problem, you wind up avoiding situations where you're just kind of shrugging and collecting money. You're hitting on something that I often think of as the mentality of a consultant versus the mentality of a freelancer or contractor. As a freelancer, it's a lo- it's very easy to, as we referenced earlier, feel like I'm here to perform these tasks. These are the tasks I'm going to do. I'm going to check the box when something is done. But as a consultant, you really are there to, in my mind, not do any harm to the client. And that might involve pushing back and saying, oh, hey, you want to spend you know five figures on this HubSpot Salesforce connector? This is not going to work for you. Like I need to say this will harm your business and that takes a lot of self-confidence to do. It's hard to stand up to a client and say, this is a very bad idea, but it's something, it's a skill that I think gets built with time, with practice and more experience writing these proposals and seeing, okay, where is the value? What projects like this have gone well? What projects have gone poorly? And then being able to say, oh, I have seen something like this in the past and you are literally setting a pile of money on fire. In fact, you will save money if you just set the money on fire. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely add to to sort of anyone listening that um, don't expect to have like those intense insights right off the bat for sure. And they'll definitely, but the more you do it, the more they'll come down the line. And also the reason why you'll know to tell a client that something is not going to work for them will probably be, be because maybe you've done something in the past that didn't work for a client. So if something doesn't, if you think something's a good idea and you move forward with it and it ends up not working with the client, don't beat yourself up too badly about it. Like 
of course, do the best you can to to fix it in the situation, but definitely put it in your put it in your catalog for the future so that you can become more experienced as a consultant being able to advise the directions of your client moving forward because that's where a huge part of your value will come from. A couple more tactical things that come to mind. Uh, I'm curious, do you guys include testimonials in your proposals? I do on the last page. So right before, right beside, so I have my pricing page is actually my second last page. And then the last page is like, what do we, how do we go from here? And it has a testimonial um, and a button that says like, let's do this. That links straight to a confirmation email. Um, and then the payment schedule is also on that page too. So yeah, I do. It's been the same one for a long time. I should probably mix it up, but. <laughs> I never have, but that's because it never occurred to me. I think I'm going to steal that actually for hit subscribe. Uh, we are in the process of collecting um, some testimonials. We make note of when we get nice words from clients and we have those in our back pocket, we're putting together a collateral document these days. And so, you know, bolting a couple of, you know, testimonials onto the back of a proposal sounds like a great idea to me. So full endorsement of the concept, even though I haven't actually done it. It's a good one. And just being able to like point to somebody else's kind words and that says, hey, they did something like this before and it was great, in my mind, always amps up a proposal, makes it float a little higher. Do you guys have lawyers review or a lawyer review your proposal? I have my lawyer review the contract, which I guess brings up a different, mm. a whole different discussion is like, what's the difference between a contract and proposal? What comes first and all of that kind of stuff too. So my process is the proposal is the first thing they get and they actually don't have to sign anything on the proposal. It's more of like a verbal slash email approval. Uh, and then they get the contract, which lays out um, payment terms. There's actually some like very weird stuff that's included in my contract now because um, over time, your contracts, just like your proposals, will evolve depending on the situations of um, like of the clients, like of the clients that you work with. And then things will eventually, I feel like my, my proposal has shrunk to, for the sake of brevity, but my contract has actually gotten longer. <laughs> um, there was one client, this, this was a long time ago, so I can talk about it now, but there was one client and this was a major amendment to my, to my contract where the money that uh, she paid me to create the website was put, she was put under uh, a federal investigation for embezzlement and the money that she paid me was money that has been embezzled. So I actually got pulled into like, uh, I had to pay a criminal lawyer, which almost cost me more than the project itself. So now there's a clause in there saying, wow. hey, if you do anything that forces me to take on any legal liability, then now you have to pay for that, which is like a weird clause to have, but I, now I have to have it. So that'll evolve over time for sure. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think like I've been pretty fortunate um, for a long time. I pre-build everything I do. And I think pre-billing and collecting um, oftentimes ahead of getting started uh, gets rid of a lot of potential legal issues that you might have, though, though not that one. Um, so <laughs> I don't. Who would have guessed, though? Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I don't have a, a lawyer review proposals. We don't generally have anyone sign contracts except with enterprise clients that, that want to. And sometimes I, I recently got rid of our lawyer because I didn't like the way he was building billing, but um, I kind of act as lawyer reviewing and marking up contracts. I am not a lawyer. I probably shouldn't be doing that, but uh, anyone out there listening to me, I'm kind of at the sort of self-serve fly by the seat of your pants end of dealing with lawyers. Like I just don't do a lot of it and it's never really bitten me. I'm, I'm not advocating people do that, but um, you, you know what it is, is after a lot of years of working in and around and even consulting with enterprises, I just had my fill of gigantic documents uh, covering contingencies that never came up. So I went to the radical simplicity side, like here's a proposal, you send me a check and I'll get started. And, that's it. Um, so this is a different approach for me. I'm not, um, it's not necessarily for everyone. It's just worked for me. I definitely find myself more on your side of the continuum, Eric, where, uh, we're both adults. Here's a proposal. Here's the check payment in advance. And if something comes up, we'll talk through it and find a path forward for both of us, which I mean, I'm knocking on all the wood around me has not bitten me. I've been fortunate enough to work with good clients. Mm Obviously, that was a very specific scenario that I had to involve involve a lawyer into. But uh, I I probably won't don't use him any more than like once every two years. Um, but he'll review it and we'll make some some adjustments. But my contract says very similar to sort of what your verbal agreement says. Um, they do sign a contract saying that they'll go to mediation before they would take any legal action against me. So luckily, I've never had to use that. Um, and I've never really had to enforce anything, but, uh, it was the same lawyer who sort of set up all my, set up my incorporation and all that kind of stuff too. So that's why I got the contract done by him. I was like, let's bundle it in. Let's get it done. At the very least, he's looked over it at least twice and, uh, kind of move forward from there. But yeah, I, it's so tricky because part of me wants to say like, maybe you don't need a lawyer until you need a lawyer, but then maybe you do need a lawyer before you need a lawyer. So. <laughs> I mean, it's a like pure risk management play, like buying business insurance and certain things where, you know, there's a low chance of having a problem, but when you do, there's a extremely high downside, how risk averse are you or not? And I guess something I should say that's also mitigating is I'm selling myself a little bit short on my savvy with doing my own review and markup of contracts. I am still not a lawyer, but what I've done over the years is when I've employed lawyers to review contract arrangements and stuff, I carefully watch what they do, which clauses they leave, which clauses they mark up. So I'm not coming from no idea what I'm doing. Uh, what you'll discover if you read enough uh, contracts that come from enterprises and different clients, I see a lot of them, is that they have the same phrasing in places over and over. And so you start to almost read that as a gestalt, like there's this clause that you see again and again, and you understand what it means. And so maybe you mark up a contract to remove that. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, the the venue Um for mediation is a big one. One thing you'll see in contracts over and over again is like, you know, any, um, I forget how they phrase it, but it basically states like any disagreements that we have will be, you know, adjudicated in Austin, Texas. And then if you're reading that, you can say like, well, okay, if, if I have a contract dispute with this client, am I going to fly there? No, I'm going to mark that out. Like I, you know, you're, this isn't worth it for me. You're going to bankrupt me before I even get off the plane. So, um, 
Anyway, uh, I, I think you don't want to – certainly I wouldn't advocate signing things you don't understand. If you're able to read and parse through the document and you think you have a pretty good understanding, um, great, I guess. Uh, I, I'm on board with um, getting the most out of the lawyer. So if you create a standard proposal form, especially if there's signatures involved, probably having a lawyer review the template is a really good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely – when I did do it um... – I, I sort of cobbled together and wrote in very specific guidelines that I wanted to. So I definitely think, like you said too, it's a good, it's good to note that if you get them to do it, to create you a custom contract from scratch, it will be very expensive. But if you can use some, and there's lots of resources too. I know there's like small business bodyguard and stuff like that. Like you were saying, I don't necessarily want to give anyone legal advice, especially since I'm not from the U S which probably most of our listeners are. Um, but if you have something already existing, it's probably less expensive for them to do a review than it would be to create all the terms from scratch for sure. Oh, you know what else I'll say? Uh, if you get, if you run across in your travels, if you've subcontracted for someone, um, if you happen to have seen like other freelancers contracts and stuff, steal heavily from that, <laughs> like go and get those agreements, read through them, try to understand them and, and start there. I mean, like other people have blazed this trail before you. So you can really start with something. I mean, I'm not advocating that you go and take some other freelancers contract and use it verbatim, but like other people have done this work. You can start there and work with your lawyer on that stuff. Yeah. Full agreement for me on that, Eric. I have a small swipe file I've built over the years of contracts I've been sent and a couple contract template libraries that I've bought. And when I have worked with a lawyer on this, it's been nice to say like, okay, here's kind of the shape and form I want this example. And I really love how they do like this risk mitigation or this clause in here. Can you, you know, Frankenstein these together into something that works in Oregon or the US? And it at least gives a starting point. So it's not okay from whole cloth, create a contract for me to use. It's here's the framing. These are the parameters I like. Oh, and to go full meta uh, as a freelancer, dealing with your lawyer, um, that should really drive home how much it sucks to consume hourly billing so (laughs) it's so anxiety inducing (laughs) yeah what's the value of me getting an answer to this question it'll take you know somewhere between six and 60 minutes oh while it starts to close so one thing i'm thinking is like you know as we get a little like long into the episode maybe a good way to to wrap would be pitfalls for people to avoid when creating proposals or I don't know any like tips or pitfalls, like what are actionable pieces of advice that, that you have for people who are maybe new to the game of creating proposals. Mm-hmm. My biggest piece of advice would be that the sale is not made from the proposal. It's the deal is closed in the conversations and the research and the engagement and the follow-up and your attention to detail and the questions you ask. And maybe that's a whole other episode too, is like the onboarding process. But I really believe, and from my experience, the proposal has been nothing more than a formality. But that being said, it's important to make those formal details as clear as possible. But the sale is not closed with the proposal. I think it's closed long before then. I think people decide in a short time within meeting you. Agreement for me on that point. Uh, A couple of things that come to mind. One thing I've learned the hard way is 
if you know you set a deadline with the client, hey, I'm gonna get you that proposal by Tuesday. And Monday night rolls along and it's like 6 p.m. And you're like, holy shit, I still have to do like a heavy lift on this. Don't push yourself and work until 1 a.m. and send out the proposal. Email the client and say, this is taking me a little longer than I thought. I will get this to you on future date, da, 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 da. That, it, it, I've often felt like I need permission from somebody else to do that. So if any listener is like, oh God, what do I do in this situation? You have permission to renegotiate the deadline. You have permission to say, it'll take another week because that's what it's going to take to get a high quality proposal out. And if the client pushes back, that is a big old red flag. A another bit that comes to mind is honestly around anxiety, writing the proposal, getting it ready can stoke the fires of anxiety sometimes. And if you experience that, you give yourself a day, write the proposal, let it sit. Don't send it out while anxiety brain is active. Come back to it after a day and say, okay, how do I feel about this once I've slept on it? Oftentimes for me, it's like, oh, this bit here, that's what I felt uncertain about. Let me rewrite it. Sending it out while feeling amped up around the proposal won't do you any favors and the client will honestly appreciate it more if you take the time, push out the deadline and send them one that you feel more positive or secure in. That makes me think of um, something I do that maybe some of you out there will find to be a great life hack. But when I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm taking kind of the middle of the road proposal, I'm going to put a, um, a lighter one on there and then maybe like a home run one on there that is for a lot more money. What can be pretty anxiety inducing is creating the price around that. If you're like, I'm going to write this up, I'm going to put a price on this and then I'm going to hit send. I actually create two separate tasks in my backlog with a proposal. One is I call it come up with skunk works pricing. And then the other one is to kind of review the pricing and formalize it. And I have found that separating those into two tasks when I'm just doing the quote skunk works one, I'm not nearly as anxious over like, oh my goodness, are they going to freak out over $20,000 is the middle option? You know, is this too much? Um, I kind of just am going with my gut there and saying, yeah, you know, 12,000, 20 K and 50 K feels like the right three tiers for this. And then tomorrow I can go back and, and have all those like mini panic attacks about whether that's crazy, but I don't have to do it now. And I have found that separating those two things that usually a day removed, I'm kind of like, Oh yeah, this seems, you know, this is fine. And then I send it out. So that's a big one is to kind of create a separate task for, initial reasoning and review on the pricing, because I think that's what makes a lot of people particularly nervous. Uh, as a pitfall, I would recommend um, avoiding your tendency. I mean, I see this a lot, you know, broker, uh, the company that brokers blog posts, new writers do this, but like, if you don't do a lot of writing and you're newly minted freelancer, one of the things you're going to be inclined to do in a proposal is write it like it's an academic thesis paper with like lots of hard to understand sentences and passive voice. And you're going to try to like speak business ease and sound impressive. Don't do that. Um, the tone for the proposal shouldn't be casual. I mean, you're not writing a blog post, but it also shouldn't be difficult to parse. You want to be as clear and simple as possible. Here's, you know, your situation. Here's what I'm proposing we do about it. Here's what it's going to cost. Uh, so, you know, maybe even run it through the Hemingway editor or something like that just to see if it's readable and then, you know, doubling down on the piece of advice to send it to somebody to review. But uh, don't don't go overboard in trying to sound like you're some $500 an hour consultant. Uh, nobody's going to appreciate that. You're not going to impress anybody. So those are a couple of, you know, last minute tacticals that come to mind on my end. 
Also, if you're having any difficulties writing a proposal, um, we do have a full proposal guide that uh, where you guys are welcome to. Uh, it's available on the Business of Freelancing mailing list. So if you just go into businessoffreelancing.com, you'll be able to opt in. You'll get the guide. And uh, I also do a video walkthrough of a typical proposal that I do 100% free. You guys can check that out. There's a bunch of swipe scripts. If nothing else, there's at the back of the guide, there's a checklist of all the components. So that includes like a price, a testimonial, a call to action, payment schedule, all that stuff just to go through to make sure that you've got. Um, so I just wanted to add that kind of free resource in there too for you guys. In case you're stuck payment schedule. You. That's a good one that I, I do, but didn't even think to mention. Mm -hmm. That's important. Perfect. And you could find links to that in a, a show notes, dear listener. Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, picks this week, I've got one, not related proposals, but I've been reading the book, Chop Wood, Carry Water, How to Fall in Love with the Process of Becoming Great. And it, it's a really heckin' great book. Uh, it, it's The structure is interesting. It's set as almost like a series of guided stories around overcoming these challenges around process framed in terms of the main character becoming a uh, samurai archer and falling in love with the process of you know learning how to shoot the bow with the body, with the lungs, with the eyes, with the brain. It's a, it's a great book, and I definitely recommend it for folks listening. It's about a two-hour listen on Audible, so definitely a short one you could read within a day. I think just in a topical sense, I didn't come armed with anything premeditated, but we were talking about, um, I had mentioned Jonathan Stark when it came to value pricing. I think he's um, the work he's doing in the pricing seminar and his hourly billing is nuts. If you were to sign up for his mailing list or consume the work that he does, um, I don't know if he has anything specifically on proposals, but he talks a lot about discovery and pricing and kind of the psychology around um, proposing work to the clients. So if you're looking for um, kind of a more philosophical resource about how to approach pitching things and proposing things to clients, uh, his material is great for that. So that's my pick here this week. And my pick this week would be uh, another book slash audio book as well. I think it's on Audible. Um, Never Split the Difference. And it's a, it's a book about negotiating. And I know we talked about that. We actually don't negotiate on price. But it's, uh, it's a book that, again, uh, like Eric touched on, goes into some sort of psychological techniques of just ways that you can better present the information to your client um, to sort of prompt them down down the road of uh of making a decision because ultimately whether they do want to work with you or not we just we need the decision um and we need to know for them to make the uh to make the call and for you to be able to clearly clearly state your your case and your value in that book that's a really good book uh again i think it's on audible as well too there's also another uh there's a youtuber called chris doe chris do is his last name um which we can link as well too he has some really awesome all of them are like less than 10 minutes for the most part some really awesome techniques for um presenting specifically proposals to clients for um website design and website development as well nice i'm not familiar with his stuff i'll have to check it out mm -hmm. it's awesome well that brings us to the end of today's episode if you're enjoying the business of freelancing, we'd love to hear questions from you. If you have any suggestions for topics or questions that this episode or another episode has brought up for you, 
go ahead and send us an email or a message and let us know. You can get in touch with us at businessoffreelancing.com. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll be back next week with the Business of Freelancing.